Hey, thanks for joining us at Praise Chapel. We hope you enjoy this message from our midweek service with David Diga Hernandez. Also, we'd love to hear what God has done in your life. To share your story, email us at info at pcparamount.org. Again, we hope you enjoy this message. Well, good evening, Praise Chapel Paramount. Glad to be here with you. I don't know about you, but I'm excited for Harvester's Conference coming up. That is going to be a tremendous time. I already know it. Um, I want to minister a word tonight. I don't want to take too much time because there is a powerful atmosphere here, and I might not even finish this message, um, but I do want to take the time to get into the word. So I want you just all over this room, please lift your hands all across the room, and let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to touch each heart and each life as the word is ministered. Come on, I want to hear you pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we lift this service to you. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to have your way and do whatever it is you want to accomplish tonight. I pray, Father, that you would mark us and that you would touch hearts. Don't let us leave here the same. Let us leave here transformed and more like Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray. I want everybody here to say amen. I want to take a look at something in the Word of God that will really stoke the fires of your love for Jesus. My goal tonight is to provoke you with holy jealousy. Now, jealousy is not necessarily evil unto itself. It's when the subject of jealousy does not belong to the one who is jealous that it becomes wrong. Jealousy that is rooted in fear, that is possessive, that is angry, is the type of jealousy that the Scripture condemns. But which one of you married men wouldn't feel jealous if your wife went on a date with some other guy? That's godly jealousy. That's a holy jealousy. The holy jealousy demands or desires or wants that which belongs to it rightfully. So I want to inspire in you a holy jealousy for the things of God that you would desire to know Jesus and that desire would intensify to greater levels than ever before. I want to take a look at the scripture here. Go to Mark chapter 3 and I'm going to read several different portions of scripture from the Gospels. And I want to show you what the Bible tells us concerning how Jesus developed his relationships. The scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He is the same today as he was yesterday, and he will always be the same. He does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's take a look at how he organized his social circle. First, I want to show you the crowds in Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse number 7. I prefer you have your Bibles or the Bible app. Uh, either one of those will work, and I want you to read this along with me as I read. You don't have to read it out loud, just in your mind. So Mark chapter 3, verse 7 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Verse 9, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. 
for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirit saw it, whenever the impure spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, "You are the Son of God." So the first tier of relationships that we see with Jesus, number one, we see that he addressed the crowds. Now the crowds came to him for what he was able to do for them. They heard of the miracles. They heard of his ability to cast out demonic beings. They heard of his ability to teach with power and authority. And they said to themselves, I want to connect with Jesus for what he can do for me and in me. And then we see another group that gathered around Jesus. It was the 72 disciples. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus had more than 12 disciples. The scripture says he had at least 72 of them. And we read about them in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse number 1, the scripture says this, The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send workers into his field. Now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. The interesting thing here about Luke chapter 10, this specific portion of scripture, is that Jesus tells his disciples to pray that God would send workers into the harvest. And then those disciples who prayed became the very answer to that prayer as God sent them into the harvest. In other words, when you begin to pray for something, a need, a nation, a person, that prayer, more than it will change anyone or anything else, will change the one who prays. And as you begin to pray, God begins to do something in your heart, and you become transformed, and you become the answer to that prayer. But here we must notice and take notice that there are 72 disciples that came near to him. So first off, we see the crowds. The crowds would come near to him and they said, we want to just touch the hem of his garment. We want to receive a healing. We want to receive deliverance. We want to receive from his power. The 72 didn't necessarily follow him for what he could do for them, but they followed him for what he could do through them. The 72 connected with Jesus in relation to their cause or the ministry. Now, I'm not saying that these 72 didn't love Jesus. But when I think about the 12 disciples and among them, Judas Iscariot, it's not that difficult to imagine that at least some of the 72 were actually just in it for what they could receive as far as power and authority. Now, ushers, help me out here with any noises, please. They were not just in it necessarily, all of them, for just loving him. Many of these 72, I'm sure, were involved with Jesus because they wanted to receive that power that he gave. They wanted to do what Jesus did. So the first tier, the crowd, wanted to receive what Jesus could do for them. The second tier, the 72, wanted to receive or be used by what Jesus could do through them. Now, none of these are evil unto themselves, but the truth is that Jesus calls us to greater depths. And I'm going to drop a truth on you, and some of you might not like it, but that doesn't mean it's not the truth. Are you ready for this? Some people, some believers, are closer to Jesus than other believers. Some believers walk in greater levels of power than other believers. Some believers walk in greater levels of authority than other believers. 
This is just the reality. Now, I am not saying that these levels are not available to anyone. These levels are available to anyone who would want to follow Jesus. But that doesn't mean they necessarily belong to every believer. Because here's the truth. Many believers think they're hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit when in fact they live by their emotions and they don't even realize it. Many believers think they know the word, yet they treat it like it's some magical book. And when they read it, they say, well, when I read it, it speaks to me this. Or when I read it, I get this out of it. Did you realize that when the authors wrote the books, they had intentions in their writings? Did you realize that there's a right way to interpret the word and a wrong way to interpret the word, which is why the scripture tells us to rightly divide the word? Do you realize that the voice of the Holy Spirit, its greatest foundation in our lives is the word of God? So there are some believers who who will say, oh, I know the voice of God when it's actually their emotions, or I know the word when it's actually just a superficial devotion to some scriptures that they read every now and then without ever fully gaining understanding of the context and the scripture as a whole. Are you, are you hearing me tonight, church? I'm giving you the truth. Now, if you're not careful, you get trapped in that place because you're so defensive about being called on that. So the one who cannot grow is the one who's like, well, I do know the Lord. Well, I do know the word. And they can never receive correction. They can never be taught. Why? Because they're not really in it for Jesus. They're in it for what he can do through them. So, so these are different levels here. There's the crowds. What can I get from him? There's the 72. What can he do through me? I love the way the message translation puts Matthew chapter 7. The message translation is a powerful, I, I would call it a commentary, but it, it actually is a translation. And in the book of Matthew chapter 7, the message translation words that terrifying scene that we're all familiar with in a very uh, interesting way. We all know the portion of Scripture where those who come up to the Lord, it says they strut up to the Lord on that day confidently uh, to the Lord, fully expecting that he'll embrace them. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you, workers of lawlessness and wickedness and iniquity. And they're like, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out devils in your name? He said, depart from me, for I never knew you. But the way the message translation puts it is so powerful. The tra- that translation words it like this. Get away from me. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. And some people, that's what they do. They take the word, they take Christ, and they use it just to make themselves important. They didn't have anything in the world, so here, maybe I'll have some status if people think I'm prophetic. Maybe I'll have some status if people think I'm anointed. Maybe I'll have some status if people can hear me sing when I do worship. This is, this is the ministry aspect, the, the, the ministry perspective on following Jesus. And so if, if you're stuck at that level, you know you're stuck there when, when, you, you, when you're not really flowing in the anointing and you say, well, don't they know how long I've been around? And you think, you think your, your anointing comes from your history when it doesn't come from your history. It comes from being rooted in him. And you might wonder why nobody can receive from you. You might wonder why nobody can, can honor what you think is the anointing on your life when, in fact, it's stagnant. I'm preaching truth here tonight. So, so this, is, this is that level of the 72 where, where they're walking in that ministry, but they're not walking with him. They're, 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 they're studying the word, supposedly, but they're not really going in it in any depth. They're just a few chapters a day, and then here's how I interpret it. No, no, no. It's what is the Bible saying by itself to me? 
What is the actual meaning of the, 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 this word, the, this context, these verses? What is God actually speaking through his word? It is not a magic book that we could just add our own feelings onto. It is something that has intended meaning. And the same goes for prayer. The same goes for ministry. The same goes for all of these things that people misuse to try to look spiritual. They misuse to try to gain status. And in fact, when they stand before the Lord, they may find that they're one of the wicked ones that he never knew. So the crowds want Jesus for what he can do. The 72 want Jesus for what he can do through them. And then look here, there's a greater tier. Out of the 72, Jesus chose 12. Now, this is by no means in chronological order, but I'm just showing you as it progresses to closeness with Jesus. In Luke chapter 6 now, go to Luke chapter 6, verse number 12. The Bible says, One day soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. Notice here, before a major decision, Jesus takes more time to pray. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Here are their names. You know, of course, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Simon, Judas, and of course, Judas Iscariot, which I find interesting they put in parentheses, who later betrayed him. Um, so they made sure to throw that in there. But here are the 12 now who walk closer to Jesus. Now, they're not necessarily following him for what he can do through them, but they're joining with him because they believe in his cause and they believe in his teachings. Now, this is a deeper walk with the Lord, but it's still not the one that he has for you. All of these things are good so long as you don't stop there. You should ask the Lord to heal you and touch you. You should be like the crowd and come to him. He wants to do that. He's compassionate and he's loving and he's merciful. You should be like the 72 and say, Lord, do something great through my life. You should be like the 12 and say, Lord, I'm for your cause and I love your teachings and I want to be near you. But it goes even deeper than that. I want to show you now. I'm going to show you just... Maybe two or three more verses here. Go to Matthew chapter 17 now. Is this blessing you tonight, church? Go to Matthew chapter 17. Now this is the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. So remember, we have the crowds. We have the 72 disciples. We have the 12 disciples. Now watch this. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, the scripture says, Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. He didn't take all 12 of the disciples with him on top of the mountain. He took Peter, James, and John. Now, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I don't think God was trying to show the disciples Moses and Elijah. Because look at what he says in the next scripture. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him, emphasizing Jesus. 
There on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, and Jesus, the new covenant. And God says, now draw your attention to Jesus, the new covenant. And he begins to cause them to focus on him. Now, the scripture says that later they come down from the mountain and they find disciples trying to cast demons out of a boy, but they were unable to cast that demon out of the boy. And then Jesus, the scripture says, as he approaches, causes the people to stand in awe. I believe he was still glowing with the glory when he walked down from that mountaintop. And he cast the devil out of that boy. Now here's my question. Why weren't the disciples able to cast the devil out of that boy? I'll tell you. The disciples were not able to cast the devil out of that boy. Number one was because it was a higher level of wickedness. It was a greater level of demonic power. And they couldn't deal with it because they were not on the mountaintop with Jesus. If you want to be able to deal with the devils in the valley, you have to be able to stand with Jesus on the mountaintop. The disciples in the valley could not cast out the devils in the, in the valley because they were never with Jesus on the mountaintop. They never saw the glory of God. Only those who've seen the glory of God, only those who've truly been touched by the glory of God can be used for the glory of God. And so we see Jesus welcoming Peter, James, and John to his high point, to the revelation of his glory, so that they could see him in the fullness of his person. And then in Mark, I'm going to read this in one more scripture. Mark chapter 14, verse number 32 we all know this story. It's a very powerful and famous narrative. The scripture says they went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. And he became deeply troubled and distressed. Now watch how vulnerable Jesus becomes. Imagine Jesus coming to you and saying this. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death stay here and keep watch with me once again we see not the 72 not the crowds not the 12 but peter james and john welcomed into the inner circle of jesus they were with him at his highest point the mountaintop and they were welcomed to be with him at his most most vulnerable point in the garden of gethsemane when his soul was crushed with grief. You see, church, Jesus loves you all equally, but he trusts you in proportion to your obedience. Not everyone will be welcomed on the mountaintop. Not everyone will be welcomed in the garden. Not everyone will be able to see the glory of God manifested. Not everyone will be able to see his heart open. This is what I believe the scripture is talking about when it says, I want to know him and the fellowship of his suffering. There comes a time in your walk with God when he opens up to you and you begin to see sides of him that you never recognized were there. In John chapter 21, verse 7, the final verse, we see now the inner circle of Jesus narrowing even more. There were the crowds that followed him, the 72 that was used by him, the 12 that were for his cause, the three that loved him, and there was the one that knew he was loved by him. John chapter 21, verse 7 says, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. 
I'm going to point out two things. Number one, John was closer to Jesus, not necessarily because he knew he loved God, but because he knew he was loved by him. When you recognize that you are truly, completely, and wholly loved by Jesus, it does something in you that causes you to love him back. The scripture says, we love him because he first loved us. So, the crowds wanted something from him. The 72 wanted to do something for him. The 12 were for his cause and his teachings. The three loved him, but the one knew he was loved by him. And notice that the disciple whom Jesus loved was the one who had to say, it is the Lord, because Peter didn't recognize him. John recognized Jesus even before Peter did, and Peter was on that inner circle of the three. So the question is now, what was it about Peter, James, and especially John? I'll tell you, they spent time with him. They knew him. They loved him. The others didn't see Jesus transfigured or Jesus in distress. They weren't with him at his highest and his lowest point. Furthermore, the others never saw a glimpse of Jesus quite like John saw a glimpse of Jesus because he's the one who wrote the book of Revelation. I want you to think about the visions that he saw. No other disciple really wrote like that. Even the Gospel of John, the way he wrote it, was written in a way that was so different than the other three accounts. Think about how he begins it. The others begin with Jesus' life. They begin with genealogies. But John goes all the way back to eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, he describes this beautiful illustration of how God became flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. John knew Jesus deeper than any of the other disciples. And that's what I want. If you want him to trust you more, you have to steward what he's given you. You say, Lord, I want you to trust me with revelation, but do you even read his word? You say, Lord, I want, I want you to trust me with ministry, but are you living holy? You say, Lord, I want you to trust me with winning the world, but are you even winning your family? God can only use you as far as he can trust you. Are you carrying your cross? Some of us want God to move just enough in our life to bless us, not enough to disturb us. And we wonder why God's blessings aren't being poured out on our lives. We sit there in our convenience day in and day out while the world goes to hell. We sit there in our convenience while God has made himself available. And instead of choosing the depths of the riches of the glory of God, we settle for a Netflix series or a a, a timeout to take a nap or a a little league soccer game. And we, we trade the riches of heaven for the things of this world. The scripture says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his own soul? Some of you aren't even trading trading your soul for the whole world, you're trading it just for a portion of it. I want to know him. I want to be on his inner circle. I want him to trust me. Do you have a private prayer life? Do you spend time with Jesus? Again, I say he loved them all equally, but he trusted them in proportion to their obedience. You know, when I was about, oh my gosh, I'd say, I still don't have the age right because I don't remember exactly when it happened. But for the first time ever, a couple weeks ago, I shared this vision that I had. And I want to share with you what I mean when, when God begins to share his heart with you. Yes, we read everything we know of him in the scripture. And if it's not backed by scripture, don't believe it. 
But this vision I had came to me when I was about, I would say, 12 or 13 years old. And I hadn't shared it before because, you know, Paul the Apostle wrote about things not, not necessary to share or things that he shouldn't share. I think there's a timing to these things. And the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you learn about him that you don't necessarily need to share with everyone. There are things I know about the Lord that you can find in Scripture, yes, but there are experiences with him that I've had that are just so personal I wouldn't share them with anyone. But the Lord released me to share this with you because it's time to share it, and it goes with what the message that he's given me for this particular season. So when I was about 11 or 12 years old, 12, 13, somewhere around there, I had a vision. It wasn't vivid. It wasn't like in the movies where you're completely taken out of your body. It was just while I was praying, I saw a vision. And in my vision, I saw the throne room of God. I didn't see the detail like you would see described in the book of Revelation. I don't think that I was ready for that. But I just saw a room, and it was basically just a brilliant white light that filled the entire room. The walls were glowing. The, the throne was going. God's clothes were growing. I couldn't even see his face because his, his countenance was so bright. And I remember in the vision, I began to approach the throne very reverently. And with every step forward that I took, I felt a heaviness on my heart begin to intensify. And I thought that was odd because, you know, the scripture talks about there being joy in his presence and peace in his presence. I had peace, yes, but there was something that was happening inside of me as I stepped toward him. I began to sense this weight of sorrow coming on me. And the closer I got, the stronger that, that heaviness became. And then in the vision, I could hear him weeping. And I asked the Holy Spirit what I was sensing, and the Holy Spirit revealed to me what you're sensing is just a taste of the pain that the Father feels over the lost. Now, you can read that in Scripture, that God's heart aches for the lost. But to see a vision like that, and to have the Holy Spirit reveal, and for God to welcome you in and show you that, you wonder why I preach the salvation message with such passion? It's that vision. I remember thinking, Lord, I want to wipe every tear from your face. I want to win souls that you might reap the reward of your suffering. You think that I preach the gospel just for souls, and yes, that's part of it, but souls are not even my main driver. I recognize there are people going to hell. I recognize that it's an eternal consequence depending upon what decision they make when they hear the gospel. But the, the lost aren't even why I really preach the gospel. That's secondary. I preach the gospel that I might bring comfort to his hurting heart. I preach the gospel that he might receive what he died to receive. I preach the gospel for him. Souls are secondary. It's for him. Now that kind of depth doesn't come easily. That comes from a true encounter in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that kind of encounter comes when he can trust you. And he can trust you when, one, you obey his word, and, two, you spend time in his presence. That really is the price. Somebody asked me, um, we were traveling over the weekend. Someone came up to me and said, what's the secret? I want to know. What's your secret? I said, well, it's not really a secret. I said, I'm going to tell you what it is. 
and then you can either go do it or, or not. So the secret really is this, time in his presence. That's it. Do you realize that everything else in your life will stem from that? Everything else about you, your, your passion for ministry, your, your, your walk of holiness, your devotion to prayer and the word, your worship, all of that stems from time with him. I want to be nearer to him. I want to be on that inner circle. I want him to trust me with ministry. I want him to trust me with revelation. I want him to trust me with his word. How many as I'm talking, you say, I want to go deeper? Hey, thanks for listening to this week's message from Praise Chapel Paramount. If you want to stay connected, follow us online with Facebook and Instagram at PC Paramount or visit our website at praisechapelparamount.com.